You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 82 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I've traveled to Bucharest in Romania to attend the Sumeruna Awakenings Conference. From this psychedelic event I will host two podcasts. One with film director Jan Kunen and the other is today's episode with none other than the legendary Dennis McKenna. Dennis is the brother of Terence McKenna. And uh, Dennis is an ethnopharmacologist, a lecturer and author. He is a founding board member and the director of ethnopharmacology at the Hefter Research Institute, a non-profit organization concerned with investigation of the potential therapeutic uses of psychedelic medicines. So thank you for wanting to talk to me. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Have you any impressions of this uh, Congress so far? Uh, Yes, uh, most of my impressions are quite good. Uh, I mean, actually, all of my impressions are good. Uh, I have never been to Romania, and I was kind of delighted and a little bit surprised when I was invited, but I'm very glad I came. I'm learning a lot, and I think... uh, this conference is the first conference on this topic in the Eastern Europe, and so that's a milestone. And uh, it's just an indication that the interest in these sacred medicines is global and it's growing, and I think that's good. So in that sense, I, I like this conference. It seems well-organized, good speakers. I have nothing negative to say about it. It's all been good. <laughs> I want to ask you about something you mentioned in one of the talks uh, when you asked the question, and I thought it was very interesting. And you you talked about, uh, you know, it's very common for people who uh, use uh, psychedelics, uh, or in particular ayahuasca, to call ayahuasca a she. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can elaborate on on your thoughts on that. (coughs) Well, I think... uh you know, with something like ayahuasca, it's, you have to be careful about your the way you use words and language around these things. And projection is very easy. And, you know, uh, there, there isn't anything inherently bad about calling it she, but to think of it that way and talk about it that way, there's a whole uh, underlying uh, context of uh, certain assumptions about how you think about it and how you assume other people think about it and sort of how you think it ought to be thought of. And I think we just have to be careful and clear in the language that we use because we don't know. Is it a she? Uh, you know, And does it matter? I just think... You know, humans, uh, in order to make something familiar and comprehensible, they like to personify it. They like to uh, anthropomorphize it and so on. And calling her she implies that it's like a person. It thinks like you. It's not a person. And it doesn't think like you. That doesn't mean it doesn't think. You know, I think they, these plants are conscious. I think everything in nature is conscious. So it's not really criticism. It's just, it's just a, a little bit, you know, examine your assumptions, right? And it, uh, I guess part of my objection to the, you know, common use of the word she is there's an assumption that there's a cu- community of people that are already agreed that this is how we think about it. And there's a certain, uh, even in the ayahuasca uh, community, there are people who, uh, you know, commit the, uh, the error that I think happens in religion far too much, which I sometimes call simple answers for simple people. There are no simple answers in religion or in ayahuasca or anything else. Life's a complicated deal, and it requires 
careful thinking and constantly checking your assumptions. But in within the movement, there are certain you know people who they sort of have this new age perspective on things, and it's all happy hippies and fuzzy bunnies and all that. And it doesn't really work that way, you know. So all I'm ask, all I'm uh, suggest is we should have clarity and in the way we think about these things. And personification may not be uh, may not be a useful way to think about it. Or for some people, maybe it is useful. I'm not uh, I'm not a person out to tell people how to think about things. If anything, my mission is to just encourage people to think for themselves well, I'm not here to tell them what to think that's the whole problem with religions you've got an authority figure who is this is what you need to be thinking I'm the opposite of that I'm just saying be clear and, and think about how you think and that's the problem with these these terminologies I think I'm not saying don't use them, just sort of be conscious of uh, how other people receive that and what their assumptions might be and all that, you know. Um, because I do think these sacred medicines are, in some sense, intelligent, you know, and now there's a charged word. What do you mean, a plant's intelligent? Well, yes, it is, but not the way you or me are intelligent. But, you know, so that's all of these issues and come up uh, in discussions of psychedelics and, and ayahuasca because we're dealing with some sort of pretty fundamental uh, assumptions about the way things are, the way reality is structured and all that. So other terms also, you know, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, consciousness is not coming from the brain, it comes from outside and the brain is a detector of consciousness. Well, maybe in part that's true, and then there's the other side that says, well, no, it's all neurochemistry. It all comes from the brain, and in part neurochemistry plays a big part of it. But I don't think we have enough information to say anything definite. So it's all about examine your assumptions, keep an open mind, and as ayahuasca, she never fails to remind me remember how little you know you know always keep that in mind how little you know because we don't know much and it's good to keep that front and center because it keeps us uh, it keeps us focused on the fact that you know not it, it encourages us to be careful in the way we think and talk about these things <clears throat> and it also gives us uh, the freedom to learn you know, I mean, you can't really learn until you've gotten rid of everything or at least seriously question everything that you think you know, you know, because you, you know much less than you think you do and whether about anything. And uh, <laughs> that's a long answer to a simple question, but it, it's not a simple answer. You know, it's a complex thing. You know, you're a scientist, and uh, normally scientists think in a rational way. And even though you are uh, not like a normal scientist, <laughs> your mind is more open, I would imagine. Uh, but still, you know, in order to get a PhD, you have to think a certain way, you have to follow protocol, right. otherwise you're not getting a PhD. Right. Has this confused you somehow when you do ayahuasca ceremonies, like... Does, your, does it affect your, your way of perceiving things? <coughs> well, <coughs> no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I am a scientist, but I'm other things too. I'm also a human being and a curious person and a person who's familiar with the medicines and their states of mind and all that. And, you know, to say, well, you're a scientist and that, that's the label. Well, my God, I got that uh, particular, uh, you know, union card, if you want to put it that way, um, 30 years ago. A few things have happened in 30 years and I've learned things. So I'm still a scientist. I, I like science. I think science has its useful. 
I'm also acutely aware of its limitations, and I think that's another thing that you learn from the plant medicines. Again, coming back to this, remember how little you know rubric. I mean, scientists uh, in our society are, uh, uh, you know, often uh, sort of uh, arrogant about what they think they know, and there's it's a temptation to hubris. We need to remain humble, and we need to remain open to learning new things. That is the at the core of the scientific endeavor, is to, you never prove anything. You never actually know anything for sure. You develop models that seem to fit the data, and then you check them against the data. And, and uh, you know, if they're a good model, you can't disprove it, but you can never prove it. And new, new data may come in the next day or the next week or 50 years down the line that totally turns your theory on its ear, you know. So that's true science, which is rarely practiced these days. What's practiced is a kind of a caricature of science because people, scientists, quote, unquote, rarely think about science in terms of what they're doing you know they may understand their specialty very well and how to do experiments and measure and crunch numbers and so on but do they ever pause to think about why are we doing this what's the objective and uh, so uh, so I don't have a problem with it I mean I, I have I'm comfortable with cognitive dissonance <laughs> you know I, I can say yeah, science has its uses but uh, don't assume that it's the, you know, the final answer because I'm not even sure there are final answers. I, I think that in the, in the public, uh, I think one of the one of the problems is in the in the public domain. Um, you know, uh, um, people look up to scientists and they look up to science, and it, it's a cult in its own right. You know, scientists are like the priests of the, of the scientific, you know, uh, religion in a certain way. And that's dangerous, you know. I mean, I'm... And so it's, it's uh, you know, it's for the benefit of the public in a certain way that scientists, too, need to be clear about how they use language and how they talk about their thing because people, you know, should not be encouraged to assume that science... Uh, is the final answer or that it knows more than it knows, you know. And I, uh, yeah, I think you get the point. <laughs> yeah, no, I was more thinking, like, because you, you, I'm sure you have your own personal journey right. with ayahuasca and right. you've had some personal insights and things. And I was just more like, is that, has it been... Has it been a conflict with the rational thinking that you have to do when? But as you said, no, <laughs> it hasn't. Not really. I mean, it, it's a it's a challenge to rational thinking, but that's sort of the point, you know. I mean, the whole enterprise of of science, or the whole uh, you know real scientific approach to science, is to challenge it, you know. And so I'm fine with challenging it, and I think you learn more that way. What does bother me sometimes, uh, you know, is uh, like every few years somebody will come along and usually not a scientist or if they're a scientist, not a very good scientist, but they'll come along and they'll write some popular book and the, the, basically the premise is, you know, we pretty much have it all figured out, you know. There's just a few T's to cross and I's to dot and a little cleaning up around the edges and we have this edifice of knowledge that is rock solid um, that's utter horseshit if I'm permitted to use that word um, you know, about the time that book comes out then some paradigm changing major discovery will be published and, and that will obviously show that the author is a fool and they haven't looked it very closely at what they're writing about I think we should avoid uh, pronouncements like that. Scientists learned a lot about the universe and nature, uh, but really a tiny speck compared to what there is left to discover. 
So there's no place in science for arrogance. You know, and if you're arrogant about it, you are not paying attention. You know, and you're not uh, you're not paying attention, and you're not able to do good science because, you know, the first uh, thing that's got to go out the window is the, you know, assumption that you that you have it figured out. No one has it figured out. Not in science. Not in any institution that there is that I can understand. The big problem, in my opinion, with religions is that they are founded and their whole mission revolves around the idea that they do have it figured out and they're promulgating this idea. That's their whole stake in, uh, in their attractants that they're promulgating this idea that we, uh, we, we, the priests, the institution, have it figured out. So you, the members, you don't have to bother your little heads about this. You just accept what we tell you and you'll be fine. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who accept that because thinking is hard and they want uh, simple answers because they're simple people. Simple answers for simple people. The world's not simple and they're not simple answers and simple people you know, won't do well in the, in the Darwinian game because the world is, you know, problems we faced are not going to be solved by stupid people and they're not going to be solved by people who let other people tell them what to think. So I'm against fundamentalisms of all kinds. Neuroscientific fundamentalisms. And I'm against those too. <laughs> Do you do you ever think science will uh, solve the problem of consciousness, what it is, and or, or and do you have a, your own theory on on what it is? I wouldn't say that it it won't. Uh, I think science may be able to approach this. I don't think it's close right now, but I think it may eventually be able to. Uh, elucidate a lot more about consciousness than we know now. I mean, that's another, you know, false assumption about science. Science never comes to a final conclusion, you know, that can't be questioned. The whole, I mean, all you can say is science is based on what we know now, this looks like a good model. So it may, it, and every time it gets closer and closer, you never reach a point where you can sit back in your chair and throw down the pencil and say, I have it figured out. You don't have it figured out. So that's one thing. Again, it's this question of, uh, you know, how you think about what you're doing. Um, so, so I wouldn't say it couldn't uh, get real close uh, to better understanding, and I think that's happening. Uh, what was the other part of your question? What 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 model do you have? What what's oh, your what thinking? What model do I have? My model is provisional, um, like all models, and uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think that both are true. I think that well, on one level, I think that consciousness does permeate the universe permeates reality. I think that con consciousness may be as fundamental to reality as the quark or the electron. I think it's a property of, if not matter, uh, you know, uh, existence. So, uh, you know, so I think mind is there and, uh, you know, whatever that means. And, and I also think that the brain is an instrument for actively taking in information uh, from the external world and mixing that up with uh, things that we that come from memory and association and all the so it's a receiver but it's an active receiver it's not like a television set i don't agree with graham's characterization where there's just a passive signal and whatever passes through the tv that's it it's more like a computer it takes information in from outside it processes it in complex ways and makes it, you know, transforms it so that we can understand it and relate to it, and so it's useful. And it, ac and then it actually generates uh, a model 
of reality. We don't live in reality. We live in a model of reality, which may be more or less close to reality, but we don't know. We know physicists tell us that it does, this doesn't look anything like this. You know, everything is mostly empty space and it's energy fields and all that. But it's hard to know how we could uh, navigate around in that kind of an environment. And, and so it, the brain is useful. It constructs a model of reality that we can live in. We're comfortable. We can get stuff done. And it works for us. But we shouldn't delude ourselves that it is reality. It's, it's a hallucination. It, it's a simulated reality. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the, sometimes I say it's the serotonin hallucination. We're high on serotonin all the time, but that's too simple because serotonin's only one neurotransmitter. But you know what I'm saying? There's not, um, I, I don't know. I, that's my model is that both of these things are work dynamically together to generate something that kind of, you know, it extrudes out of this complex process of processing inner and outer information. It kind of extrudes this, this thing that is the model of reality. And it makes sense to us. And so it's useful. It's not reality. Uh, I know the word has a lot of baggage, but there's no other word, so I use it. You know, what's your view on, on God, if you, on your God. own view of it? I, I I don't think God is a useful word um, because God implies something that is an intelligent entity that's out there somewhere that's controlling things and kind of like directing the orchestra. I don't believe that. I think that the God principle or the transcendent principle or the divine, if you want to use that term, although that's pretty loaded too, but... I think it's built into the structure of reality. It's the if you know God is the universe waking up to itself, becoming more conscious. That's what God is in my view, and and essentially I'm a pantheist. I mean that that idea is is pantheism. It's like there is no external God. We're God. Everything's God. It's just you know existence itself is God. So I'm a, I'm a pantheist and an animist. That's the other term. There are actually this idea that consciousness, uh, you know, permeates reality at every level. That's essentially animism. That's like saying even electrons have a an aspect of consciousness. I was talking to a friend recently about that, and um, we were thinking, does that even imply to like a chair or a table, or is it? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Anything, anything. Because at fundamental levels, conscious, you know, mindedness is a is a property. Now we don't see it. You know, I mean, rocks don't appear to be conscious very much, and we can't really figure any way to ask them if they're conscious. But you know, maybe someday somebody will, and we might be in for some surprises. <laughs> Look at what happened when we asked plants if they were conscious. You know, and some of them responded and said, "Damn right, we're conscious." You know, and not in so many words, but you know, we are conscious, and not only are we conscious, we're in charge. <laughs> you know, so uh, again, it's this is all about epistemology, and and you know, how do we know that we know things? And uh, so it's complex. It's uh, it's complex. Yeah, because I, I remember as a kid I ripped apart a teddy bear and then long after I started my journey with ayahuasca I retroactively like felt bad that maybe I had killed something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did, but it's okay because, uh, you know, matter is not created or destroyed and systems are dissipative, systems are ephemeral, you know. Things come together and they fly apart, and that's just the way it is. And they're largely self-organizing these systems. So, I wouldn't feel too bad that you tore your teddy bear apart. It will forgive you. 
Do you? I, I assume uh, it's uh, ayahuasca that you're continuously maybe working with, uh, but you know when you read, you know Terence books about your experiences long ago, uh, it was uh, the mushrooms. But you've gone over to stay with ayahuasca. No, no, it's not one or the other. I, I respect mushrooms very much, and they're still really important to me. And they were the first, uh, the ones we got mixed up with, you know, to the greatest extent back in the day. Uh, but then for whatever reason, I didn't really consciously say, I'm going to switch my allegiance to ayahuasca. I think they teach different things, and I think they're complementary. Uh, and I take ayahuasca more because it's easy to take it more. You know, it's a kind of uh, medicine where you do that. You take it, at least I take it usually in a situation where you're there for several days and you're taking it for three or four or five, six days and, you know, in a concentrated block of time. Mushrooms for me are... Uh, Uh, once or twice or three times a year kind of thing. And I usually take them by myself or usually with one other, maybe two other people. So the social context is different. I think that people people make assumptions about mushrooms that they're somehow easy or lighter than ayahuasca because you can use them recreationally. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But you can take low doses and have a great time. And they're probably better than drinking, you know. I mean, less harmful and more fun, certainly. So, bec- And ayahuasca doesn't really lend itself to that at any dose. <laughs> and they're not fun to take. It, it tastes terrible and all that. But I uh, think that um, because they can be used that way, there's an assumption that they are less serious but I challenge you to take seven grams in total darkness and come back and tell me they're less serious. You know, I mean, it's the same dimension. It's the same place. This is all the tryptamine family of, of compounds. And it is kind of like a dimension, and these different molecular configurations get you into the same area, if we grant for a minute that it is kind of like a territory, a dimension, or whatever. So, uh, you know, they will, as we proved to ourselves with the mushrooms when we went to La Terrera, they'll get you as far out as it's possible to get. And sometimes so far out you can't get back, which is what happened to us. So people should respect mushrooms. Don't take them less seriously. They're, they're wise and older than plants, by the way by several hundred million years, people uh, have an inaccurate uh, perception of how long plants have been around. Not as long as you think. Well, everything's relative, but flowering plants have only been around about 65 million years. They really proliferated. I mean, there are relatives of them that go way back, but the, the dominance of the biosphere by flowering plants was something that followed on the asteroid impact that knocked out the dinosaurs. There were flowering plants before that, maybe. But before that, it was all spore-bearing, like vascular plants, ferns and, and uh, uh, you know, tree ferns and, and club mosses that were, you know, 30 feet tall and all this. The non-flowering plants and the fungi are older yet than that so they go back fungi are old 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 so they go back 300 400 million years isn't like fungi its own like animal kingdom and its It's biggest creature in the planet yes all that it's its own kingdom if they're not plants they're not animals they're fungi they're its own kingdom and some of the biggest creatures on the planets are mushrooms. Not psychoactive mushrooms, as far as we know, but the ones that have mycelial networks in the forest. They can do DNA testing at different points. And, there's, and they're so big that they've been given names. You know, I mean, there's, there's one in Oregon that they figure 
probably is a cubic mile in volume and covers, you know, down into the soil and, and uh, you know, in area, you know, like several acres, several, uh, even as much as a square mile, but most of its volume is down in the ground. And they're old, too. These organisms are really old. So, again, old is a relative term, but I think the thinking is that some of these are like a quarter of a million years old. They've been around. So, uh, yeah, the biggest uh, biggest organisms uh, that we know of are, uh, are these... Uh, like uh, chicken of the woods, uh, our malaria species are, are the ones that, one of the ones that have this, this property. You recently uh, published your biography. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure reading, or not reading it, but writing, writing it, you had to look over your whole life, as you would do in an ayahuasca ceremony. Yeah. And... Uh, Looking back at your life, writing that book, uh, do you um, um, are you happy that you discovered these plants, or do you think uh, like ignorance is bliss? I don't think ignorance is bliss, based on what we've been. No, I don't. I there isn't a day that goes by that I'm not grateful for these medicines, especially ayahuasca, but uh, mushrooms too. I don't. I don't. I mean, they're the ones that got me involved in this, but mushrooms, uh, ayahuasca has been more like the the steady ally, the one you can turn to. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, personality of these things as we were. Mushrooms have a very volatile personality. They are more like children. They're tricksters. They are mischievous. They like to play jokes. Ayahuasca doesn't do that, at least for me. Usually you can pretty much trust what you're getting. The messages that you get you know, with ayahuasca seem solid. The mushrooms, it's like, you're telling me, what, this, really? <laughs> you know? So you've got to question that. And it's just a difference in uh, the way they are. Um, you know, I don't know. No, the reason I asked about the ignorance is, ignorance is bliss is because I have a friend who, you know, kind of has woken up using these mm-hmm. uh, medicine plants, and he feels that like uh, he's starting to realize how stupid the world is, and mm-hmm. he, you know, you become angry when you realize it's stupid, and he's saying like, well, before I realized all this you know ignorance was bliss you know because it's much it's easy to you know take ayahuasca and live in an indigenous community it's much harder to go back to the office and do your nine to five yeah yes absolutely well this is what they do they're disruptors you know and they they do uh you know if they don't force you but they do give the opportunity to step out of your reference frame and uh, think about your life and how you're living it and how you should be living it and if is it satisfying or not, you know. So that's one of the good things they do. They let you examine yourself and make changes and uh, maybe you shouldn't be going back to the office, you know, or maybe you love going to the office. It's up to you, but gives you that opportunity to examine how it is. You know, they used to call in the 60s, they would call DMT was called the businessman's trip because you could do it on your lunch hour. But what they never collected data on was how many people went back to work after one of those lunch hours. <laughs> and my guess is not very many or a significant number didn't. So they're catalyst for change in the personal life as well. And that's good. Ignorance is ignorance is uh may be blissful but it's it's also delusion you know i mean delusion is blissful but it's not a it's not a genuine uh bliss it's not bliss implies i don't know what bliss implies it's some advanced state of consciousness maybe if you really strive to understand you reach a point eventually where you you are serene or blissful because you've thought about 
stuff. Um, but bliss uh, based on delusion and just telling yourself fairy stories, which is essentially what religion does, that's not bliss. That's delusion. And it's not good for the individual. It's not good for society. You know, we, we don't need delusion. There's plenty... Other people couldn't do that. There's plenty of that. We don't need more of it. We need people who are trying to be clear about things. That's my thought. You know, you, you lived through the 60s, and uh, I could say that now we are living through, I guess, a second psychedelic revolution. Uh, so. yeah. And uh, what would you say, is, is there any difference to the, the oh, yeah. in back in the day and now? Well, yeah, I think there are tremendous differences. I mean, we, you know, we had in the 60s, we had no model for this in our society at all. We were not, we only were vaguely aware of indigenous traditions. Most people didn't even know anything about that. And along comes LSD and it, it drops like a bomb into society. And these things are powerful catalysts for conscious change on the individual and societal level and this came thing along nobody knew what to do with this you know I mean we had Timothy Leary who was uh, you know I mean he as it turned out we were lucky he was not so bad but he didn't know what to do with it he was as confused as everybody he was just trying to grapple with it in a meaning, meaningful way uh, but he really didn't have any more preparation than anyone else, and so it didn't really work. And uh, you know, it did. We were not able to uh, integrate it into society at that time. So the knee-jerk reaction of the know-nothings and the idiots was, "We don't understand this. It seems threatening. We have to ban it." So that's what they did without really knowing anything about it. It's just it threatens the, uh, you know, established order. So we have to ban it or potentially it does threaten the established order. And then, uh, you know, and so they did. Well, we know how well that works because they never really went away. Now it's completely different, I think. For one thing, we've had 40 years on more than that. They were banned like the end of the 60s, so we've had like 45 years of having psychedelics in our society, even though they were banned. They're still out there, and we've learned a lot in terms of how to use them properly, and we've learned about the indigenous traditions. We've borrowed from that. Some would say we've ripped them off, but hey, you know... That's, I don't agree with that. I think that we've learned because they know they had a certain uh, amount of knowledge and how to use these things. So we've learned from that and we've also developed our own uh, approaches to using them positively, partly a combination of tradition and sort of neo-shamanism and, and new age stuff. And So we're developing our own paradigms that work for our society. We know how to use these in ways that are beneficial, therapeutic, safe, and you know, ultimately good. Um, so we are much wiser about our use uh, now than we were then. We realize they're they're not that much of a. I mean, as a drug, they're not dangerous. They're not toxic. They're not drugs that few people die from psychic in that sense. They're dangerous because they change your mind about things. They give, they give you what Terence liked to call funny ideas. And funny ideas are inherently dangerous. It means unconventional thinking. Our whole society is set up to encourage conventional thinking and not, don't question, don't ask questions. It's annoying. Just do what you're told. Go to work, come home, be a nice consumer, and stop thinking about this stuff. So in that sense, they're extremely dangerous. But it's the kind of danger that you know we need because ignorance is far more dangerous. Ignorance is just ignorance is, is gonna kill us. It is killing us, and it's gonna kill the planet. 
So uh, the choice is yours, the choice is ours as a species and a society. I would choose to use these dangerous drugs and, and you know, entertain these dangerous ideas um, because there's really no hope otherwise. I mean, we can choose to be asleep, but <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. I mean, we can sleep all we want. One, someday we're going to wake up and we'll be waist deep in water. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think we're learning. I think we're learning. And again, as a, as an, as a biologist, more than a, an anthropologist or anything, that we see this play out on the cultural level over, uh, you know, a few decades, right? But that's a very short time when it comes to co-evolutionary processes which play out over thousands of years hundreds of thousands of years and this is co-evolution and it moves much more slowly and we're seeing like the you know we're we're focused down on the on the kind of the details of the last 150 years which is a very short period of time indigenous people have been the stewards and users of, of this plant these plants and this knowledge for at least 10,000 years, maybe 20,000 years, maybe 30,000, maybe even longer. We don't know. The further back you go, the more spotty the record becomes. And this is what I'm talking about on Sunday. How far back can you really push this reasonably? Um, so, um, we... Uh, I don't know. I'm <laughs> awfully tired. <laughs> I'm wandering off into nonsense, but uh, it it is. Um, we're learning. We're we're relearning. Is what we're doing to use these plants. We're relearning what the indigenous people have always known is the right way to use them, or at least uh, the least harmful ways to use them. I don't put indigenous knowledge on a pedestal they had to learn it too they are not necessarily learning it any more than the you know it not necessarily better but we have to reinvent and adapt some of that knowledge we're not indigenous people except that we're indigenous to earth you know but as a global species we have to adopt that knowledge to a you know, post-technological uh, you know uh, globe-spanning and potentially star-spanning uh, society. So we have, to, uh, we have to develop models that are compatible with all that. And uh, we're, we're working on it. You know, it's, it's happening. But an individual in one lifetime they may not see one change because of this very narrow slice, uh, you know, of, of time. It doesn't really give you a handle on what's, you know, I often wonder, where will ayahuasca be in 50 years? Where will it be in 100 years? The way it's going, most likely, you know, the Amazon will be gone in 50 years or anything like it is, which is uh, really sad for me. Not that ayahuasca will be gone. It will be there because it's already made the pact with uh, our species to get it out of the Amazon and spread it all over the world. This is not accidental. This is part of its strategy. Again, it's like we only think we're running the show. The plants are running the show. And we're working for the plants. They're, we're doing what they... That's part of their long-term survival strategy. And it's not just ayahuasca. It's any plant that we value as a symbiote. You know, corn, uh, you know... Uh, food plants, drug plants, anything that produces something that is valuable to us, we're likely to bring it under our wing and domesticate it. And that's a kind of, that's just uh, an example of symbiosis. You know, it has benefits for us and we in turn benefit it by growing it and so on. We think we're in control of this project, right? But of course, that's what the plants want us to think. Because if we ever thought about it, we'd say, "Wait a minute, who's you know who's 
So they're just quietly doing it, and we carry out their bidding. <laughs> uh, and fortunately, they're benign. You know, mostly they're benign. And uh, they just want to live and, and survive and, and grow, and, and we're, we're doing that for them. But it, it could be a pact with the devil, you know, because it's like they have an evolutionary free ride uh, as long as, uh, you know, we don't toxify the entire planet. But we're, uh, we're capable of doing that, and we may do that, you know, so... Do you have a feeling about uh, uh, is like if there's life after death or you will reincarnate or just go black? I think I don't think there's enough information to know. I really don't. If you're if I'm honest with myself, I do not know. I think there's evidence for both. I think that uh, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I, I hope it's possible. Uh, although maybe not. Maybe this afterlife is not not pleasant. Or what is the afterlife? It's. But there's too much indication of of this in human history and the intuition about reincarnation and life after death and all that. So is the, this just all a comforting delusion? Uh, you know, a story that we tell ourselves to comfort ourselves, to keep ourselves to, you know, living in the hopes that maybe there is an afterlife. I mean, if you really come to the conclusion that there's no afterlife, you know, some people's reaction is, well, I may as well just kill myself now, you know, but I don't agree with that, even if there is no afterlife. I think that, you know, I think that we're here and now, and uh, and I like being incorporated. I like being a biological machine in some ways, you know. It's fun. It's, it's enjoyable. And uh, certain points it's not enjoyable as you get sick and so on, but machines break down. Machines can also repair themselves. So in that sense, I mean, this is kind of relevant. It's interesting that like they're using uh, psilocybin now in clinical studies in hospice hospice situations, people with terminal cancer. And people have those treatments and they come out and they the main realization they come out with, they're all anxious about dying and they're afraid of dying and the psilocybin helps them overcome that anxiety. And the main realization that I almost all say is, I was so worried about thinking about death and what lies ahead. But then I realized, I'm alive. I'm alive right now. So focus on that. You can't control what's going to happen. Just enjoy the life that you have. So it puts you back in the moment, really. And it just says, well, I'm alive now, so may as well get on with it. And when death comes, it comes, but it loses its sting in some ways. Cool. Thank you a lot for talking to me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Um, thank you for your questions. Uh, you know, I sometimes wonder. I mean, I have kind of only one shtick. I, I, this is what I talk about, so I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm repeating myself. But I guess every every interview is different. So, and, but this is basically what I think about and talk about. So I hope it's good. I thank you for thank you for the invitation. Thank you. <laughs> to get Dennis' book about his life with his brother Terence McKenna, simply go to brotherhoodofthescreamingabyss.com. Now let's enjoy some music, but first let me remind you to like the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash nationalbornalchemist and follow the Twitter account at twitter.com forward slash bornalchemist. This podcast is free to listen to, so it is the least you can do. Show your love if you love this podcast, that is. Okay, now I will play a track called Hey Ho The Road Is Long by Lars Eriksson from his album Dictions and Contradictions. 
Go to facebook.com forward slash Lars Music to find out more. Freedom is in the mind. There was a mother Mary in Dresden. Her man did not come home one night. She fell asleep holding her pillow so tight. Then in the morning she had a phone call from the police telling he was dead. He had been drunk and had drowned in the local river. Hey ho, the road is long, we all need to carry on. I guess we need a song to take us through the day. The same mother Mary in Dresden, she had a son aged 19. His name was Jim, and he was the pride of his mother. One day he got a letter from the army saying we need you in war. And there he went a thousand times self-assured. Hey, hold the road as long we all need to carry on. I guess we need a song to take us through the day. Six months passed and the mother had got a letter or two from her son. She had begun to prepare for his return One day while she was doing laundry An army car drove up on the lawn And out stepped Jim's best friend And Mary burst out into tears Hey ho, the road is long We all need to carry on I guess we need a song to take us through The breathtaking living beauty of 15 On the night of the first prom She disappeared without a sound After seven months they still hadn't heard a sound Hey, hold the road as long We all need to carry on I guess we need a song to take us through She went down on her knees and prayed to the Lord, please. I am alone, oh my birds have flown, and now I want to fly to you. Don't you dare fail me too. Be fine.